So psychologist Gary Collins has called anxiety the official emotion of our age, but he actually wrote that in the early 2000s, and really anxiety has gone through the roof since then. I had a counselor tell me that uh, statistics show that about 18% of the population of our country is diagnosed with an anxiety disorder annually. And then, really, if we think about it, that number, I'm sure, has gone through the roof in the last several weeks with uh, the current crisis that we're facing. I'm sure the 18% would be a low number uh, now. And, uh, you know, I can relate to that. I mean, personality-wise, I'm pretty even-keeled. And just like everybody else, I mean, I can get anxious, but that's generally not how uh, I operate. I think usually I'm a pretty peaceful person. But, uh, I mean, there was a day, a few days before uh, we were recording this, that just one morning I just woke up and just felt anxious when I woke up, just kind of felt overwhelmed and thinking about everything that's going on, you know, that kind of feeling you get in your stomach, feel like your heart's racing a, a little bit. And I imagine that others of you uh, have had that same feeling recently. But then I think, you know, people that already struggle with this, or struggle maybe with substance abuse issues or uh, mental health issues. You know, uh, Judge Dwayne Sloan, who's a part of True Life, said to me a few weeks ago, I mean, just real early on in this uh, current crisis, that there's going to be a lot of residual deaths from people who struggle with substance abuse, people who struggle with mental health disorders. And, you know, in our area, we're already seeing that. Um, been multiple suicides, overdoses in East Tennessee uh, just since this crisis has started. And so uh, today, as we continue our series, Jesus in the Storm, I want to just ask this question of how can we find peace? Uh, how can we live in peace? How can we uh, be at peace during this storm? When this storm passes, how can we live at peace in our normal lives? And so uh, today we're going to be in John chapter 16 and really just focus on one verse there. But before we read that verse, need to understand that this is the end of a section. John 14 through 16, uh, this is shortly before, very shortly before Jesus was about to be crucified. And he was preparing his disciples for his death and his departure and for the difficulties that they were going to face after these things uh, took place. And so he's been teaching them about this and he closes and he summarizes this teaching. He kind of concludes um, you know, this discourse with them, concludes this section of scripture by saying this in John 16, Let's read it. He said, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Let's read it again because in, in a way, this is almost kind of a prescription for us to have peace uh, just in our day-to-day -day life or even during a pandemic. He says, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And, and so if we're going to live in peace, we need to understand and apply what Jesus is saying here. And so 
Uh, I think there's three basic truths that, that he gives us in this verse that, that we need to understand. And we're going to focus on the last one, which is specifically uh, you know, how we can have peace, where that's found. But number one, we need to see that Jesus is telling us here that problems are predicted. Uh, he, he's predicting, he's saying, as much as he's promising peace, and we'll get to that, he's also promising, predicting that we're going to have problems. He said, in the world, you will have tribulation. So this means that we need to be realistic regarding our expectations of life. We should not expect life to be a bed of roses all the time. Uh, you know, sometimes people uh, hear that, you know, if, if you become a Christian, that life's going to be easy and everything's going to be smooth and everything's, uh, you know, going to go the way you want it. And you can basically tell God what you want him to do. And you're going to be healthy and wealthy and happy. And, uh, you know, that's why you should become a Christian. Well, how does that line up with Jesus saying, in the world, you will have tribulation? And remember, he's talking to his followers, uh, this is sometimes known as the prosperity gospel. And it's a lie. It's not biblical. It's really, it's satanic. It confuses people. It hurts people. It hinders people in their faith. Because sometimes people think, well, I'm trusting God, but life's not easy. Something must be wrong with God or something must be wrong uh, with me. Problems, trials, storms, adversity, however you want to say it, uh, is inevitable. How we respond, though, we can control that. There's a lot that happens in our lives that we can't control, but we can control how we respond to it. Jesus said here, we're going to have problems. Problems are predicted. Problems are to be expected. And if we're going to cope with life, it comes from being uh, a, a realist, I think. You know, we can hinder ourselves by being overly pessimistic. We can also hurt ourselves by being overly optimistic and viewing things with rose-colored glasses. And then, uh, we, you know, when things don't turn out the way we want them to, sometimes it can be devastating to us. Uh, the Bible teaches us that trials are a part of life. And uh, there, there's really at least seven reasons biblically why we experience trials. Some of these apply to everybody. Some of them actually only apply to Christians. The reality is if you're a Christian, you should expect more trials than if you're not. You say, well, why should I become a Christian then? Well, it's because you get Jesus. And that's what this is ultimately about. And what we're going to see as we go through this, that we can have peace in Jesus but peace in trials, not the absence of trials. But let me just mention uh, really quickly these uh, seven uh, different kinds of trials or problems that, that we should expect or seven reasons that we have them. One, we experience trials simply because we live in a fallen world. Uh, this world is sinful, and suffering comes as a result of sin, so we should expect trials and problems just because this world is broken. It's not what God originally created it to be. Uh, if you have questions uh, about that, you can go back to the first message of our previous series, Suffering and Good News. We address it there. You can go on our YouTube channel. We did a series called The God Questions that addresses questions like that. Sometimes we experience trials because we reap what we sow. We've, um, we've created the problem, really. 
Sometimes we experience trials of refining that God is using to grow us uh, spiritually. Sometimes God is putting us through trials for the good purpose of developing us, uh, developing our faith, strengthening us to prepare us for bigger uh, things down the road. Sometimes the Bible teaches us that we experience trials because our Heavenly Father is disciplining us. Uh, you know, the Bible talks about God disciplines those that he loves. And so sometimes we go through trials, but as Christians, because of sin in our lives. Sometimes we experience trials because we're suffering for Jesus. I mean, really, in, in John 14 through 16, the primary trial that, that Jesus was talking about with his disciples there was persecution. We should expect some of that if we're really following Christ. Um, we should expect some trials because of other people's sin. What other people do, what other people, the things other people do affects us. Uh, the things that we do uh, affect other people. That's just the reality of it. And so sometimes we may suffer because of something that someone else does wrong. They may say something that's, that's hurtful or harmful, may lie about us, slander us. Uh, you could be a drunk driver harming someone, lots of different things. But we experience trials because of other people's sins. And sometimes as Christians, we experience trials because Satan is attacking us. But what I want you to see, the reality is, is that problems are predicted. Problems are part of life. Uh, they are going to happen. So we need to be realistic regarding our expectations of life. But number two, we see in this verse, and we'll just hit this quickly, and this is kind of leading into the, to the third truth that we're really going to focus on. And peace is promised. Uh, Jesus said here in, in, in this verse, John 16, that in me you have peace. And, and so as a result, we can be hopeful even in the midst of difficult circumstances. I've experienced in my life, and I've seen other people in my role as a pastor experience a peace that the Bible says passes all under. Standing. I've seen my wife as she's walked through cancer this year. Just, I mean, I'm not saying we're always on, you know, top of the mountain or that kind of thing, but just seeing her have a peace that came from God that enabled her to stand firm, and she rarely wavered in that. Jesus gives us peace once again. Not in the absence of trials, but in the presence of trials. And so if we know that in this world we're going to have tribulation, isn't it a wonderful promise to know that Jesus gives us peace, that we can't necessarily avoid problems, but we can have peace even during the trials and the problems and the difficulties that we go through. But the third thing that I want you to notice here, and, and like I said, this is what we're really going to focus on, and, and this is uh, the key thing, is that peace is in the person of Jesus. He says here, he says in other places in Scripture, that in me you will have peace. That's the key. It's the idea that it is Jesus himself who actually uh, gives us peace so we should stop then looking for peace in the wrong places, which is actually what we do a lot of the time if we're honest about it. Jesus is saying, he says, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Be of good cheer. It doesn't mean like cheerful in the sense of, you know, happy kind of thing. It literally means to take courage. 
Have courage because I have overcome the world. That's what Jesus is saying. And, and so, uh, you know, what does that actually mean that he has overcome the world? Well, the world here refers to the world system that opposes God. Um, you know, we're, we're fighting the enemies of the world, the flesh, and the devil. The flesh is our own sinful nature. Uh, the devil is, uh, you know, the enemy of the God and of God's people, a fallen angel and his uh, demons. And so we are in a spiritual battle. And, and so there's a sense in which we have to fight for peace. But we also need to realize, and this is what Jesus is saying here, is, the, is that the victory has already been won. That through his uh, atoning death on the cross, through his glorious resurrection, he conquered sin, death, hell, the grave, Satan, the flesh, and this world system. So that means that in Jesus, there is victory and peace. That means that the way we overcome, the way that John said it in 1 John uh, chapter 5, is we overcome by our faith, not by our own striving and through our own efforts, but by trusting in Jesus and what he has done for us. Peace is in the person of Jesus because he fought the ultimate battle against these foes and he won that battle because he never gave in to temptation, because he died then for our sins as the atoning sacrifice, because he triumphed over death in his resurrection, because he ascended back to heaven where he is ruling and reigning and he is praying for us. He's taking our needs uh, to the Father at the throne of God. There's victory in Jesus, so there's peace. Peace in Jesus. But honestly, our problem is, is that we have trials, we have problems. I probably don't have to convince any of you that, of what Jesus is saying there. But do you believe that Jesus is the one who is actually the source of peace? Or are you looking for peace in different places? These are, are some of the wrong places that, uh, that we look for peace, I think. Uh, I asked our church counselor about this, and she shared some of this, and, and I see the same kind of thing as a pastor. You know, a lot of times we look for peace in relationships. And obviously God created us for relationships, but there's also a lot of conflict in relationships. And I believe if we're not right with Jesus and if we don't have peace within us, instead of uh, finding peace in a relationship, we're probably going to find conflict in a relationship because a relationship is really the sum of its parts. And who we are and what we're bringing to that relationship determines what that relationship becomes. So if, if we're full of stress and anxiety and conflict instead of full of peace, we're probably going to have relationships that are full of stress and anxiety and conflict. Uh, you know, people look for uh, peace in money. Some people find their security in money. But what, what do you do when that's taken away? Can that actually be the source of our peace? Uh, during the Great Depression, during the Wall Street collapse, back in the 1920s and 30s, uh, there were uh, huge numbers of suicides of people, you know, who lost their fortune. That's the same thing. It's going to happen now if, if people are looking for peace and money. When all that's taken away, is there something that's stronger, that's deeper, that's more lasting than that? People look for uh, peace, for comfort in, in sex, in pornography. 
But a lot of times, if it's you know, an ungodly relationship, it's not a right relationship, or always in pornography, that's going to end up adding anxiety and guilt instead of actually uh, bringing uh, real, true peace to us. It may bring uh, you know, momentary uh, comfort in some way, but it's not going to last. When the Bible talks about peace, it's the Jewish concept of shalom, which means well-being. And sin doesn't help our well-being. It hurts our well-being. So it takes away from our peace instead of adding to our peace. Uh, people turn to drugs and alcohol and things like that uh, to, to find peace. But it's trying to fill a void and something external can never fill that void in our heart. In the end, it's going to take away from peace, not bring peace. You know, some people will try to find uh, peace in, in, in nature, others in, in religion that's outside of Christ. Some people look in, you know, material, to material stuff, shopping, those kind of things, uh, sports, uh, hobbies. Uh, entertainment. I mean, you might be trying to cope with this by, you know, binge watching Netflix. I mean, if, if, if sports is your coping mechanism, uh, <laughs> that's a little tough right now. I mean, there, there's a lot of guys, I'm sure, that are looking for ESPN right now. And, and a lot of this stuff is not wrong in and of itself. It's just when it's the source and, and when it's what, what we're relying on, it's going to leave us empty because when we begin to rely on things outside of Jesus, really they're idols and, and idols can never satisfy us. You know, social media, sometimes food, sometimes a certain position or prestige in life, things like this is, are, are the type of things that we often look to for peace. What I'm saying is, is that they leave us empty. Experience shows us that, but that's what Jesus is saying to us. The world is going to leave us empty. Hope and peace and joy and satisfaction and strength and comfort. What we need in daily life, what we need particularly in, in, in difficult times and trials and problems is found in him. He is the source of our peace. So, what I want us to look at then in, in, in the rest of our time is a, a couple of types of peace that Jesus gives us and, and, and how that works. Uh, we, we, should, we, could, we could also talk about you know, how he can give us peace with other people, but I'm not really going to focus on that. What I want to focus on is the fact that Jesus makes us at peace with God if we trust him, and then how he can also give us the peace of God. So, through Jesus, we can be at peace with God. Romans 5.1 says it this way. It says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.19 says, for it pleased the Father that in him all uh, the fullness uh, should dwell. And then uh, I left the next verse out, but it talks about how then he reconciles us uh, to the Father. And, 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 and reconciliation is taking two things that are separated and bringing them together. Ephesians 2.13 says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were uh, once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself 
himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh. It's talking about on the cross, the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. The, the, the idea behind this is that uh, due to our sin, because we're sinners, we are rebels who are at enmity with God. The Bible teaches us that sin separates us from God, that we're spiritually dead uh, apart from Jesus Christ, that, you know, we, we tend to think, some, a lot of people, you know, people are just born good or born morally neutral. We're corrupted by our environment. But the Bible says that we're dead in trespasses and sins, that the heart is desperately wicked, that we're created with a sin nature. We are not morally neutral. We have a sin nature that causes us to actually sin. God is perfectly holy. We have rebelled against him. We're separated from him. He hates our sin, but he still loves us. And he loved us so much that Jesus came and died for us to end that separation, to reconcile us, to bring us back to the Father, to bring us into a relationship with him where we're no longer at enmity with God, but now that we're, we're at peace with God. And Robert Mounts defines, describes this peace by saying this. He says, it, this peace, speaks of the new relationship between, uh, God, that exists between God and those who turn to him in faith. As Paul used the term, it does not primarily depict a state of inner tranquility. It is external and objective. So it's not a feeling, it's our status before God. He says to have peace with God means to be in a relationship with God in which all the hostility caused by sin has been removed. It is to exist no longer under the wrath of God. So are you at peace with God? Is that your standing before him? Do you have the righteousness of Christ? Are you trusting Jesus? Has uh, guilt been removed from your soul? Do you know that you're right with him? How can you know that? The question is, are you trusting in Jesus and him alone? Do you believe that he is the mediator, the go-between, uh, the God-man who came from heaven to earth, dying in your place, rising from the dead, the one who is the way to God. And if you're relying on him, you are right with God. You're at peace with God. You have a relationship with God. Um, you're guaranteed of spending eternity in the presence of God, but it's through Jesus. Uh, let me give you an illustration of this. Um, it, it's known as a redemptive analogy, which is something that missionaries use to be able to uh, kind of make the gospel understandable, so to speak, in a given culture, particularly one that, that doesn't have a Christian background. And um, really, there's a book been written about it. It's, it's known as The Peace Child. And so in 1962, Don and Carol Richardson were missionaries. Um, they, they're from Canada, but they're missionaries amongst the, the Sawi tribes of western New Guinea, some of which were even cannibalistic. And so as they went to minister to these people and tried to uh, share the gospel, tell them about Jesus, teach the Bible to them, they learned that the, the Sawi honored treachery as an, as an ideal. 
In in other words, they befriended people of other villages with the intent of later betraying, killing, and sometimes maybe even eating them. And so when um, they began teaching the Bible to them and began uh, reading the the Gospels and that kind of thing, uh, when Don Richardson got to the story of Judas Iscariot betraying Jesus, they thought that Judas was the hero of the story. Uh, That's what fit in, in their culture. And so uh, they were ministering to a pair of neighboring villages who were constantly at war with each other. And the Richardsons tried to convince them to, uh, you know, make peace and uh, just stop fighting. Uh, and, and, but they were unable to do this. And after several months, they said, if you're going to continue fighting, we're going to have to go minister uh, somewhere else. But uh, the Sawies didn't want to lose the benefits to be gained by having Westerners living among them. And so suddenly they declared that they were going to make peace with each other. And the Richardsons didn't really understand how this could happen uh, after this long history of hatred and treachery and distrust and that kind of thing. And so basically what happened is that uh, a young man in one of the tribes took his six-month-old child uh, and over the protest of his wife, the child's mother, and actually took this child and presented it to the warring tribe and asked if anyone would accept this child. And uh, a young man in that tribe did. And so he took that child as his own, gave uh, this boy his name. And uh, someone in that tribe did the same thing and took their baby boy uh, to, uh, and offered it to the other tribe. And someone in that tribe, uh, you know, accepted it. And then they had a uh, ceremony where with people holding uh, these babies in their arms, uh, they said those who accepted this child as a basis for peace, come and lay hands uh, on, on him. And so the tribes uh, did that, and, and the Richardsons uh, began then to learn and to understand that this was how, in their culture, that they enacted a peace treaty. It was through a peace child, and by offering you know, one of their children to become a member of the other tribe, and then they entered into a permanent peace based on then uh, that acceptance and that relationship and, and having uh, you know, a, a child from one tribe go to the other tribe and vice versa. And so he saw in this ceremony and this idea of the peace child, this redemptive analogy, and he began to teach them that Jesus is the peace child, that he is the son of the father who came and became uh, one of us, became uh, the son of Joseph, born as a man. And then he died in our place to reconcile us to the father. And so they began to understand the gospel. And some of them uh, received Jesus as the Lord and Savior. People became Christians because they saw that Jesus is the peace child. You see today that Jesus is your peace child. He is the way to the Father. He is the way to be uh, at peace with God. He is the way to no longer live under the wrath of God. Will you turn from your sin and trust Him? We can be at peace with God. But then once we're at peace with God, we can live in the peace of God. We can live with and in the peace of God. I want you to see a couple things about this. First of all, you can't have the peace of God without being at peace with God. 
if you're wondering why, maybe you're praying or uh, you, you know, you're religious, you're doing something just like, I just don't really feel peace. Maybe it's because you're not at peace with God. Have you truly surrendered to Christ? Are you genuinely trusting him? Here's the other thing I want you to see, though. According to what we read in John 16, in me you will have peace, is that peace is the present and ongoing possession of the child of God. You don't have to ask for peace. You don't have to conjure up peace. God's peace is in you through the Holy Spirit. If you're a child of God, if you have peace with God, you possess the peace of God. But are you experiencing it? That's really the question. And so uh, I want us to think about, uh, in, 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 as we close today, just some practical steps that we can take to actually experience and live in the peace of God, to actually live out of what we already possess. Because we all know that we can possess things but not use things. I mean, if we walked around our house right now, how many things would we find that we possess but that we don't really actually use? Most of us probably either have a storage building, a garage, or a room, or in some cases, all three of those of things that we possess and we don't use. And we possess a lot of things spiritually that we don't use, that, that we don't experience, that we don't put into practice. And I think peace is one of those things. So how can we actually uh, experience, use what we possess? Uh, four steps. Number one, we can experience the peace of God as we pray biblically. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says this. It says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Look at verse 6 again. Because you may be like, well, I pray, you just automatically pray and you get peace. It's not what it's saying. There's a command. He says, be anxious for nothing. Well, you say, that's easy to say. I mean, probably if somebody says, stop being anxious, that just makes you more anxious. But what he's saying is that we recognize our anxiety. We're honest about it. And uh, we admit that actually being anxious is, is, is sinful. And we ask God's forgiveness. We ask God's help with it. We pray. We ask him to meet our needs. We come into his presence. We worship him. We give him thanks, uh, thanksgiving. Uh, you know, that's part of it. It's not just saying, God, take away my anxiety. God, meet my needs. But it's actually worshiping God, thanking God. I mean, that, that being thankful helps with anxiety. It, it's recognizing God's presence. It's, it's experiencing and, and knowing God. So pray biblically. But a second step would be to think carefully. And notice the next verse here, Philippians 4, 8. It says, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate, think on, focus on these things. The battle's in our mind. And if we want to live in peace, a lot of that is connected to the thoughts that we're thinking. Um, just a couple of suggestions on this. Craig Rochelle says that our lives are moving in the direction of our strongest thoughts. That's why scripture over and over tells us to meditate on the word of God. It tells us to renew our minds, to replace lies with truth. Uh, you know, we don't have to think what we're thinking. 
We don't have to believe what we're thinking. We don't have to say uh, what, what we're thinking. We don't have to post uh, what, what we're thinking. Uh, we can let the God uh, renew our minds. We can let him change our, our thoughts. How much are you meditating on Scripture? How much are you looking to God and uh, thinking about who he is? How much are you meditating on the promises of God? Listen, worry comes from meditating on the wrong things. The more we meditate on our circumstances, the more anxious we're going to be. The more we meditate on God's truth, the more peace we're going to have. Uh, another thought that I would give you, something that our church counselor says, is to try to switch uh, from what if thinking to even if thinking. I think a lot of our fear and anxiety comes from the unknown. I, I can be that way. I, I tend to struggle more with the unknown than I do even with bad news. A lot of times we can play out all these what-if scenarios in our mind, these worst-case uh, scenarios. That's going to make us more anxious. But what if we translate that? What if we change our thinking from what-if thinking to even-if thinking? And what, what she means by that is even if this happens, God is still good. Even if I go through a trial, God is still in control. Uh, even if I feel anxious, Jesus can help me to feel at, at peace. Even if, even if I die in Christ, I'm going uh, to heaven. And switch from what if thinking to even if thinking. And, and by even if thinking, we're talking about, okay, this could happen. But even if this happens, this is God's truth uh, about it. Even if this happens... This is what God is going to do. Third step would be to live obediently. Um, Paul says here in Philippians 4, 9, the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Listen, we can't be living in disobedience to God, running from him, and expect to live in peace. God loves us too much for that. He's going to be convicting us of our sin, dealing with our hearts. And at times in my life when I was running from God, from outside of God's will, I didn't feel at peace. So maybe sometimes we need to wrestle with the question of, okay, do I not feel at peace because there's sin in my life, disobedience, rebellion, I'm outside of God's will. So maybe the way to peace is going to be through repentance. And then the fourth step would be to walk in the Spirit. Jesus said, in me, you have peace. And then he ministers that to us through his Spirit. It's not natural, it's supernatural. Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit, the supernatural working of the Holy Spirit in us is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. He, he's saying to live under the control of the Holy Spirit, to uh, be filled with the Spirit, to ask God's Spirit to control us, to help us, uh, to guide us, and, and supernaturally within us. God will minister peace to us. It's not natural, it's supernatural. I referred in the beginning of the message to a time recently where I just woke up, you know, just feeling anxious, feeling kind of overwhelmed. What did I do? I began to pray. And I began to deal with those thoughts. And I began to, to, to meditate on God's truth. And I began to worship, to praise Jesus 
for dying for me, for rising from the dead, began to thank him for blessings, and, and just, you know, sought to enter into God's presence to, uh, you know, in a sense, fight against this anxiety, to fight for peace. Sometimes that is what we have to do. And the Holy Spirit ministered to me. And in, in, in a little while, my anxiety turned into peace, turned into a, a sense of the presence of God. That's what these steps are about, to, to pray biblically, to change our, our thinking, to repent of sin, to uh, seek God and, and his presence, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so if you're a Christian, if, if you're at peace with God, you possess the peace of God, I encourage you to take these steps so you can experience and live in that peace so he can help you. So Jesus, who overcame the world, can overcome this in you and replace your anxiety with peace. If you're not a Christian... If you're not at peace with God, Jesus is the peace child who came and died so you can be forgiven. He, he absorbed the wrath of God so you don't have to experience it. Uh, he took your condemnation so you don't have to live under condemnation. He died to set you free. He rose from the dead to give you new life. Will you admit your sin? Will you admit your need for him? Will you admit your inability to save yourself and give your life to him. He invites you to do that right now. And so, uh, as we conclude, I just ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And if you're not a Christian, and God's speaking to you and he's working in your heart, and you feel the weight of your sin, and you know that you can't save yourself, but you believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died for you and rose from the dead, right now will you turn from your sins Turn your life over to him. Will you bring your sin to the cross and receive his forgiveness, his righteousness in exchange? Will you call on the name of the Lord Jesus? You can pray something like, Lord Jesus, I believe that you are the one who came and died to make me right with God, to make me at peace with God. I believe you rose from the dead. And right now, I trust you. I ask you to forgive me my sins. I ask you to come into my life. I ask you to take control of me. I confess that you are my Lord and my Savior. If you just trust in Christ, if you're on the online church platform, I ask you to check the, the button that says salvation. And take the next step of clicking the prayer button and talking to someone about it. Let us help you take your next steps. Or if you have questions about that, click the prayer button. We have people who are ready to minister uh, to you. If you are a Christian... Will you bring your anxiety and fear and worry to the Lord right now? We ask him to fill you with, your spirit, with his spirit. We um, repent where you need to. Ask him to help you and do a work in you. If you need somebody to pray with you, click on that button. Or if you're on one of the other platforms, let us know in, in the comments section. Uh, or email us at info at thetruelifechurch.com. Or message me at Jimmy Inman on Facebook. If we can minister to you in some way, we want to do that. Let me pray for us. Father, Lord, I thank you that you love us, that you're with us no matter what we're going through. And I just pray that you minister your peace right now. Help your children to take the steps that they need to take. For people who don't know you, let's pray that your spirit would convict them and draw them to you. God, give us peace in the midst of this storm. In Jesus' name we pray.